Hello, hello, welcome. It is the EPL show once again on this Thursday evening, in fact. My name is Oscar Rutherford. I'm joined tonight by Josh Parrish and, of course, virtually Nick Hughes. How are you both tonight, gentlemen? I'm doing well, Oscar. Good to see you back. Good to have this show back. We've had a couple of weeks off, so there's actually a lot to discuss. A lot happened in English football since we were last on. There have been many things that have gone on across many teams across the league. Nick, how are you? How are you feeling tonight? I'm doing well. I'm feeling good. Um, Like Josh said, it's uh, good to be back on the EPL show train. Uh, And bang on couple of weeks off and uh, it seems like it was the, the worst couple of weeks to miss because coaching changes, multiple competitions. We've had a cup final, FA Cup games, Champions League games um, and all sorts uh, going on, on and off the pitch. So looking forward to uh, unpacking it all with you guys from uh, the comfort of my bedroom. Yes, and P- producer Pakua has already insisted, Nick, that I that I quiz you on your choice of shirt for this evening. Uh, she's very proud, very excited. I think. Uh, okay, do you ha- do you have an explanation or, or or a reason tonight to be wearing what appears to be an Arsenal top? Um, well, I'll start by saying producer Pakua um, is apparently keen to. Um, come on the show uh, at, at the end of the hour to talk about Arsenal. And I look forward to reminding her uh, of how much uh, hate she gave her own club uh, <laughs> and, and how, how much I tried to convince her um, that the future was going to be bright at the Emirates. Um, so before she starts uh, engaging in any sort of gloating, uh, I'd just like to get that in first. Um, the no story. scenes when Nick stands up and reveals it's actually Rotherham jersey or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It is Arsenal. Uh, proof. Um, <laughs> no story behind that. I, I think, honestly, I think this is the most attractive home jersey in Premier League history. I absolutely loved Ooh, it when it was a released. Big call. <laughs> that is a um, big call. I uh, and I love Gabriel Martinelli, who is uh, is on the back of the shirt. I think he's a, a huge talent. Uh, I was looking in the drawer, deciding which one to wear, and I thought um, Gunners are up and about a little bit. Had a, a nice win against uh, Watford over the weekend. Martinelli scored a, a lovely goal. All, all of the goals in that game were lovely, to be honest, uh, from both sides. And, um, yeah, just felt like a, a fitting one to chuck on. Well, look, as you said, Pakua will perhaps be joining us at the end of the show, <laughs> so we'll probably talk more about Arsenal then because, shockingly, Pakua apparently has some strong opinions on these matters. So <laughs> we, we, we may well be able to, to be enlightened as to some of those later on in the show. But to start, Nick, you alluded to the fact that lots has happened in the last two weeks. Josh, you did too. So mm. many things have happened. Uh, perhaps if I were to choose to start at what I think is the most significant thing that we've seen the last couple of weeks is that Leeds sacked Marcelo Bielsa. They brought in Jesse Marsh. It's a, it's a, it's a new world at Elland Road. Josh, what are your thoughts and what have you made of it so far? What did you think of the sacking, all of the above? I I think the outpouring of emotion for Bielsa has been unlike anything I've ever seen for a manager, Uh, maybe since Sir Alex Ferguson retired at Manchester United. It's been unbelievable. All the Leeds fans, unanimous in their their love for him, not only as a coach, but as a person, the the way he seemed to be so humble. There's these stories about him always, you know, greeting and, and chatting to people or taking a photo. Um, he apparently lived above a candy shop or something mm. in, in Leeds in this humble dwelling where he's just a whole lot of like just just 
him in a dark room basically watching match footage obsessively. <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he's such a character. I think it's uh, a blessing that we've seen him in the Premier League. I think it's a little bit harsh in some ways, uh, the the fact that he's been dispensed with so unceremoniously and there's been some Leeds fans upset by that, especially given the injury troubles they've had. Mm. But if you look at the other side of the coin, perhaps you can argue that the injury issues are actually the result of his kind of brutal uh, methods over the course of his tenure. Um, and the fact that these players are breaking down is is no uh, is really no coincidence. But then you look at the manager they brought in to replace him in Jesse Marsh, who comes from the Red Bull Leipzig school of run, 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 press, 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 counter, counter, counter. I don't think that's necessarily going to help that. Mm. So that, for me, doesn't line up logically from from the club. Uh, but, yeah, I'm sad sad to see him go. Yuzi? Yeah, I think he's – you're right, Josh. He's certainly seen as a, a, a sort of messiah, uh, if you like, around Leeds there. I think one of my favourite – uh, images or, or just pieces of football content in general is that photo of him in the supermarket aisle in his full Leeds tracksuit after a after a match, just pushing his trolley around like you know, like you you go down to your local grocery and see all the nonni with their trolleys. He just looked to to, to fit in perfectly. Um, he clearly had a, a massive contribution first and foremost to the community um, in Leeds and. Um, you know, he'll ultimately be remembered as the manager that got them back up after, I don't know how many years it was off the top of my head, but probably approaching 20 years since they were relegated from the Premier League. Um, and uh, he'll undoubtedly always be loved. Um, I was surprised that they chose to sack him before season's end. There was plenty of talk in really only a couple of weeks before it happened that uh, his contract was up at the end of the season and it wasn't going to be renewed and, and they would be parting ways anyway. So I was surprised that they got rid of him early. I thought they might have um, had a bit of faith in him to to maybe just keep them up and then maybe in the off-season go in a different direction. Uh, but I don't think you can argue really with the premise of him getting sacked, particularly given the his last two results were a 6-0 defeat and a 4-0 defeat. Yes, 6-0 away to Liverpool uh, and, and 4-0 against Tottenham, who, I mean, depends what kind of Tottenham you get on on any given day, I guess. But, you know, they're currently two points off the relegation zone, uh, five wins in, in 27 games. It, it's been a grim season. You you absolutely cannot argue with that. Loads of conjecture about uh, Bielsa's you know, training regime and, and whether or not it is you know, forcing those injuries as well. It's curious to me, Bielsa, because he's got this reputation around the world of being this incredible coach. And, you know, you you hear the likes of Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, and Mauricio Pochettino, I think, has weighed in. And and loads of other people saying that, you know, he was a a big role model for them and um, they, they really learned a lot and took a lot of his philosophy into their own coaching. But when you look at his coaching history, it's really, it's just not that much to go off. He hasn't won much in terms of, in fact, he's won uh, an Olympic gold medal and the championship with Leeds, um, Olympic gold medal with Argentina, of course, not with Leeds. Um, and you look at some of his other gigs, 12 games at Espanyol, uh, 41 games at Marseille, uh, three days at Lazio, mm-hmm. 14 games at Lille, um, 
a 1.42 points per game average uh, over 113 games at Athletic Bilbao. Like, is he actually that good of a coach? I don't even, I don't really understand. Um, look, I'm going to, the thing with Bielsa, I, I find, is that, you know, we talk about how beloved he is, particularly within the Leeds community. You know, he's become this, you know, grandfather of West Yorkshire. He's, he's, he's got mm-hmm. this, this almost cult around him. The thing, and people from the outside love to talk about Bielsa and Bielsa's game style. It's really entertaining to watch and providing great entertainment value. But the thing that I think gets lost amongst that is the results that Bielsa got with Leeds are outrageous. Like that was a team that was stuck in the lower reaches, well, not in the lower reaches, but predominantly in the second division of English football for such a long time. And they had manager after manager who got close but couldn't get them over the line. And then he came in and and he's taken them not just from a mid-table championship club but to a to a mid-table Premier League club in his first season. And then even this season, Josh, you mentioned the injuries, mm. particularly to Calvin Phillips and Patrick Bamford. I mean, that's so crippling to the to that team and the system that they play. You know, the four one four one. If you lose the two ones, mm. kind of you've lost the links between the whole team. Yep. So I don't think it's surprising that that losing those two players has had the impact that it has. That I mean, I understand the argument which says maybe that's a product of the way Bielsa plays. And in fact, it quite likely is. But I don't think that changes the fact that Bielsa's results, what he actually did, how, how, where he actually took that club, are remarkable. And I don't think that gets enough attention compared to, to how good of a game style it is to watch. I think also there's awards for at a team level and individual level there's results but there's also your contribution to I guess football history and tactics and the way that your team's approach has influenced other managers because Bielsa is a is a purist and he is an ideologue in the way his football is played perhaps more so than any other coach we've seen in the modern era uh, so that has come with certain trade-offs. You know, he's he's walked out of clubs, as you mentioned, um, when things haven't been right, when he when he's decided that he's not going to get things his way, he's not going to be able to implement his style. He's just walked out, you know, broken contracts, et cetera, and so on. You know, he's clashed personality-wise with various owners and players. Uh, he's taken his ideas to their logical extreme and and perhaps – you know, this, the legacy of other coaches seeing his teams in action and, and taking inspiration from them is more significant than what any of his teams have done. But to defend his record for a moment, I mean, Athletic Bilbao, they were runner-up in the Copa del, in the Copa del Rey and in the Europa League, which for that side at the time was unheard of. And they went to Old Trafford when Manchester United was still good, you know, and <laughs> and played them off the park. And no one had ever really seen that before from a side of that that stature at Old Trafford. You know, that was incredible. And uh, coaches around the world will use that example and that footage. I mean, I know Ange Postacogli, for example, has taken a lot of inspiration from that game specifically. Uh, the Chile side that he coached, he took them to greater heights than they'd ever been. And after he left, they basically kept playing the same way and they won multiple mm, Copa Americas. America. Yeah. So it, they didn't win it with him in charge necessarily, but they basically just continued the process that he started and the ideas that he implemented and they won they won silverware that they you know never dreamed of. So I, I think you know his legacy 
uh, is maybe not represented in the trophies that he's won over the course of his career. And you think of the the amount of coaches who've uh, paid tribute to him and the way his ideas have influenced football at the top level as it is played now, when you think of the best teams in the world, such as Liverpool and Manchester City, I don't think those teams necessarily play that way. You know, the extreme pressing and mm. the extreme uh, commitment to playing out from the back with short, sharp passes. I don't, I don't think those ideas necessarily are prevalent at the top level of football if Bielsa's not, you know, if he doesn't exist, if his impact isn't felt. Mm. Yeah, fair call. I mean, I, I generally was like mm. posing the question to... I think it's to, a good question to ask. To talk about that, Nick, yeah. No, no, no. I, <laughs> no, no. I, I think, I think it's a, it's, not at all. It's not, it's not a simple argument. I'm sure no. there's, there's plenty of ways you could yeah. refute that, but mm. that's, that's where I, I stand on it. And I think, no, I, you know, maybe his, his time was up at, at Leeds, that group of players had given all they had to give, but you look at the, they turned this, this team of no hopers essentially into a promotion side missing out heartbreakingly in one playoff um, series and then getting promoted the next year uh, without really signing anybody. Like if you look at the amount of signings he made, he just basically signed a couple of players and then worked with the existing group he had there. And, you know, no one would have thought that someone like Stuart Dallas was going to be a Premier League caliber utility player all over the park. You know, there's, there's players, there's plenty of examples in that lead side where he's elevated their level to such an extent that, you know, I don't think any conventional manager coming into that job would have thought this group of players is good enough to get me to mid-table in the Premier League. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a, a, a true call. And, I mean, perhaps, you know, obviously, and, and like I said as well, he, he clearly did a fantastic job, um, certainly in the beginning, and, and will always be remembered as the guy that got leads back to the Premier League. But perhaps, um, you know, if you look at it that way, perhaps there was... Um, a level that he reached with the lead squad that, you know, whether or not Jesse Marsh can can push that level further forward, I guess will remain to be seen. But perhaps he sort of found that within the playing squad that that was the the sort of peak or, or just about the peak that they could reach. And, um, you know, it, I guess it, it does seem from a football point of view, it does seem that it, it might have been time to part ways. One, one more thing that I'll, I'll sort of question um uh, around him is the like obviously i uh, appreciate you know the, the entertaining nature and that revolutionary style of the the manic pressing and the the man on man essentially um um or man marking uh, across the pitch but to me there's there's times where that sort of thing is just naive uh, I, I totally understand like you back your principles and you, you play your style and you, um, you know, coach your players in your style and and you stick by that. But when you're losing four nil to Liverpool, there's a time where, Oh, I mean, maybe not, maybe if it's four nil, you just say, Oh, screw it. We're going to concede more anyway. But that Liverpool game for a couple of weeks ago, the amount of goals and chances that were created from Mane, who was playing as the center forward, just dropping into the space Pascal Stroik is following him because he's man marking because that's how they play. The one team that you cannot give space to is Liverpool. And I, I was baffled that they didn't at least slightly tweak how they were defending in that, in that game because they just left acres and acres of space for Salah, Mane, 
Um, I can't remember. I, I assume probably Jota was playing. Um, well, I mean, that's D- why they call him a loco. Yeah. I can't remember. That's that's why he's different. Is because he he is, as I said, like an ideologue. He doesn't compromise. You know, any other coach at at their core, at their heart, is a pragmatist who will say damage limitation at a certain point. Bielsa never says that, and maybe that's prevented him from reaching the very top of the game. Maybe that maybe that's yeah. what it is. But I think it's also made his legacy and his playing style resonate more with with mm. other younger coaches who've, who've you know, because if he was willing to, you know, put 11 men behind the ball once he's 4-0 down against Manchester City and not, and not cop two more, uh, I don't necessarily know whether his principles would have resonated to such an extent. He would have become in any other manager. Yeah, you're right. Like it just—it doesn't look good, and it eventually gets you sacked, and it has everywhere he's gone. But yeah, and mm. I mean the defining feature of Leeds in these last couple of months, the the the, the final games under Bielsa was how much space they left for teams, mm. kind of how vulnerable they looked. And you know, you look through their season, you know, they lost four nil to Spurs, six nil to Liverpool, four two to United, conceded three to Villa, lost three nil to Everton. To Everton, it's madness. Mm. <laughs> but what I'm struck by is, and you look back to a, a few weeks before that, the seven nil loss to Man City, where they were just so comprehensively beaten, they were so far off the pace, and it just looked like a complete mess. It was like, what, what could possibly be the plan here? What could possibly go right? And, you know, you contrast that, though, to how they did last season and they beat Man City last beat, season. Exactly. Kind of, it's this, you know, which, as Josh says, it's this this idealism, this all-or-nothing approach of if it works, it's brilliant and if it doesn't, we'll get battered. But that's what, I guess, is so endearing about someone who's so committed to his principles, to someone who's so willing to, to live or die by that same sword. And that was really the defining feature of the Bielsa years at Leeds, I thought. I think it also says something about our mentality when we look at football and results and the sort of risk-averse nature of most observers and most fans even. Because three points is supposed to be the, I guess, the incentive to attack and to take risks and try and win games and not draw them. Uh, but I think psychologically uh, losing two games and winning one feels worse than drawing all three, even though it's the same points. And yes. you know, it leads copping so many goals and losing in the manner that they have has, I guess, damaged Bielsa's reputation in the eyes of the, the owners at Leeds specifically and also across the, the opinion of him across the Premier League because the manner in which they lost, whereas goal difference... You know, it doesn't usually make it... It's not usually a deciding factor as to whether you get relegated or not. So, you know, maybe taking a more conservative approach, they might have picked up a point here and there or lost by two goals fewer, but maybe they don't beat West Ham 3-2 in that crazy swashbuckling game. So I also think psychologically it's a difficult... Uh, thing to process as a as a fan or as an observer when you when you see them getting tonked every week they will squeak out the occasional win because they're taking more risks than other teams in their position would but it feels worse because you're copping so many goals on a week to week basis it's hard to cope with yeah that's that's another good point and I 100% agree I, I always have that thought about the um, the the credit we give as just the general football fans to sort of being unbeaten. Like, you know, you mm. can be unbeaten and have five draws in a row or win two and lose three. You've got more points with two wins than five draws. 
And it's that's um, why so, the Arsenal Invincibles record is kind of nonsense because exactly. there have been many teams that have broken the points record. That is objectively yep. a better outcome. But yep. the fact that they're invincible and they're in the, the only team is uh, somehow placed above that for, for whatever for whatever psychological reason. I'd just like to confirm that 100%. no one in this vicinity has voiced any dissent to that position, Josh. Like, like, you know, like <laughs> Definitely that, haven't had that, any protests in our that, ears that's from that's our producer. That's a universally agreed upon opinion, I think, yeah, <laughs> Not, with, without any hesitation at all. Well, um, you go, Nick. Sorry, maybe, maybe the last thing I wanted to bring up um, with Leeds is you mentioned particularly in the championship that they didn't sign too many players. Obviously, with the Premier League comes more money, comes the need to strengthen... And I think you look at the recruitment in some areas. Rafinha's obviously been great, although seemed to sort of slow down whether or not there was a falling out or some fitness issues uh, towards the end of the Bielsa reign. We're not sure, but he's been fantastic. Rodrigo, they spent a fair bit of money on him. He hasn't really done anything great. Um, Junior Firpo, granted he was a backup left back and a young left back coming from Barcelona, but I don't think he's done very well. Diego Llorente, the same. I don't think he's done very well in defense as well. So I don't think they've recruited particularly well, mm. which has, has probably, you know, been another uh, reason for. Yeah. I don't think they've built any downfall. depth and the fact that they've had yeah, those injuries yeah. in key positions means they haven't been able to, to cope with the absence of Phillips, I think, in particular. And yeah. we know that that's the Bielsa Trust, the select few players he likes to go to. Look, we should go to a break in a second just to make a final... I'll, I'll make two really quick final points. Firstly, to mention Jesse Marsh's side looked a lot more solid on the mm. weekend mm. against Leicester. You know, had the, the, the compact players in front of the ball, the two defensive midfielders protecting the four. That looked good. They played on the counter, which used the pace of Jack Harrison and Rafinha and, and the like. Um, and then just the final thing, just if there's nothing else to credit Bielsa with, he's turned Patrick Bamford into a decent <laughs> Premier League striker, which five yeah. years ago would have been beyond ludicrous to suggest. Mm. And I, like, just that that's wild that he's done that. So, I, you know, I think Bielsa has certainly left his mark on the Premier League. But Interesting with Marsh taking over. Uh, how will the English press treat him? Are we going to have a Bob Bradley 2.0 when they, where they yeah. make fun of him for calling it a PK instead yeah. of a penalty kick? But he learned <laughs> I like, that, I like that interview that he gave about the, the perception of American coaches. And he said Ted Lasso probably, probably didn't help. And, <laughs> but no, I, I, um, I, uh, I, I love, Je- I mean, I say I love Jesse Marsh. I, Obviously, didn't watch much much Austrian Bundesliga when he was at Salzburg, and and I didn't watch uh, really any Bundesliga when he was at RB, uh, RB Leipzig. But when Salzburg uh, played Liverpool in the the group stages, um, of course, there was that video that came out of him sort of swapping between German and English in the change room and doing a bit of the you know Mourinho or Pep you know sort of dancing in the um, uh, along the the change room and being very animated. He's a young coach that, you know, that Salzburg team, I guess in a way is is sort of one of those countries like your well, It's a one team league. Let's let's Yeah, I was I was gonna say like your Netherlands, but I mean you still got PSV and and others behind Ajax. But yeah, so Salzburg are, are very clearly the, the strongest team in Austria, but in particular under Jesse Marsh, they um really, really dominated that league. We know they're a talent farmer, young players. Um you look at uh, Erling Haaland, of course, Pats and Daka, uh, Takumi Minamino uh, coming out of there and, and plenty more to come. Kareem Adeyemi is a, a massive talent as well. 
unfortunately. Obviously didn't, speaking didn't help of Salzburg, them against Bayern this morning. Yeah, they <laughs> got absolutely slaughtered by Bayern Munich yesterday. Yesterday, but, sorry. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing um, seeing Jesse Marsh coming in. Uh, and my only hope is that he doesn't uh, coax his old friend Takumi Minamino uh, away from Liverpool and bring him to Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll have to head for a short break, but we'll see you guys very soon. Welcome back to the EPL show on this Thursday night. You are joining us again after our initial chat about Marcelo Bielsa's reign at Leeds coming to an end and talking about Bielsa, the man himself, for a significant portion. But alas, we must move on to other things within the Premier League. Many other things have been happening both on and off the pitch that we've seen. Uh, Notably, Chelsea have been put up for sale or sold or are in the process of changing hands, uh, which, of course is implicated with a whole bunch of other geopolitical matters with, with which we are not qualified to perhaps pass judgment on. But nonetheless... We don't want to pontificate on Russia-Ukraine uh, on, the, on a football radio station, Oscar? Look, look, we... we no. Okay. No, good, I don't. Good answer. No. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you passed you pass the test, Oscar. <laughs> so big, the simpletons... Um, the- no, you go. No, I was just the 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 one thing I I may uh, sort of chime in with is the um, God, it still makes me laugh. The um, oh yeah, uh, you know Roman Abramovich makes the statement initially that he's um, uh, whatever I don't know the technical term, but he was putting uh, making the charitable foundation stewardship in charge, and care was the phrase <laughs> yes i don't know yes. if there is a technical term that's not a technical yeah. term <laughs> um so that was the first one then a couple of days later he puts it for uh, puts it up for sale uh and then uh he says you know all all proceeds or profits which again ambiguous as to what exactly that means net uh, proceeds was the phrase yes will be uh will be donated to ukraine so, oh, isn't Roman Abramovich just a fantastic stand-up guy? He's donating money to Ukraine, the same money that he's poured into the regime that is currently taking Ukraine over. But that's all the politics that I'm going to get into. Um, Geopolitical it, hot tags from Nick yes. Well, as I, as I said on the Euro show on Monday, uh, Nick, if, if Chelsea was seaworthy, it'd be floating next to the Maldives by now in non-extradition waters. You know, if he could, if he could take, the, yes. take the club <laughs> along with the, the gold and the jewels and the furs and get out of there, he would. Yeah, exactly right. And the, the reality of it is um, he's obviously only selling it because he doesn't want the club to be frozen because obviously all those financial um, implications are, are being thrust on. Russian people and Russian organizations, but yes, we'll, we'll move on from the politics of the football side of it. It's obviously huge because we know that Chelsea have been massive spenders. They've had huge success under Roman Abramovich, you know, sports washing or whatever aside, the simple facts of the matter is they have won a lot of trophies since 2003 or 2004 or whenever it was. And when you compare that to what Chelsea was before Roman Abramovich, you know, they'd never won the European cup. They've won two now. They weren't even really perennial first division um, side in the, you know, even in the sort of 80s or, or 90s that time um, approaching the start of the Premier League. Uh, and they've won 
how many leagues did they win? Two in a row in 05 and 6, 2010, 2015, 2017, five or six, however many it is since he took over. Um, and and now having having him out, it's um it'll be curious to see what happens because I think uh, obviously it's, what's it been put up for three billion pounds uh, I think is the the rumored number and you know someone coming in isn't necessarily going to be willing to spend as much money uh, as he was and it's probably an interesting conversation about even under his regime certainly in the last few years about how money was spent at Chelsea because you look at some of their star signings in the last few years, they haven't exactly fired and and lived up to the price tag. So certainly from an on-pitch point of view, from a, a, you know, competition point of view, um, strictly football, it's, it's very, very interesting, very intriguing and, uh, and something we'll have to keep an eye on uh, when a buyer is announced, you know, whether or not it's Conor McGregor or <laughs> some other fraud that has too much money that he knows what to do with. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. You know what Roman Abramovich would have, would have said when he saw Conor McGregor was interested? Is uh, who the F is that guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> yes, well, the reports, many reports of various interested buyers from Swiss billionaires to US businessmen to Crystal Palace mi- minority shareholders, all, all of the above because reliably informs me that someone related to Ghana interested in purchasing the club. Um, so, you know, that, that all seems up in the open at the moment. Mm. It's hard to imagine anyone coming in who won't continue to spend lots of money on the club, I'd, I'd think. Well, you say that, but you think about some of the takeovers that we've had in the last mm. few decades. I think about the Glazers at Manchester United mm. who don't spend any money. They're just taking dividends and uh, most of the transfer budget comes not out of ownership funds at all. In fact, mm. they're sucking money out of the club. It comes from sponsorship That's and true. they're incredible merchandising arrangements. Uh, not to say Manchester United is a is a poverty stricken no. enterprise, but uh, certainly the <laughs> owners aren't contributing to that. Whereas Roman Abramovich has given interest free loan after interest free owner financing to to Chelsea, and he's saying he doesn't want any of that paid back, which is that was the significant part of the statement for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, with Liverpool, with the the um, uh, Hicks and Gillette coming in, didn't seem to have the money that they they promised they did. Uh, the obviously leverage buyouts it's in the Cronkies at Arsenal so it depends I mean often some of these mm. American ownership groups that come in don't yeah. seem to want to spend their own hard earned on uh, more than the price of the asset on running the club it's more mm. uh, trying to run it as a business yeah. so it, it, it depends they, they could get a more miserly uh, tight-fisted owner than, than Abramovich has been over the last few years for sure. And of course Chelsea in a rare position of having had a manager that the fans actually like and, and, and actually mm. are disappointed to have left kind of thing. It's not really been the trend of Premier League ownership in the last few years. So Yeah, um, of course they are a fan of him because they had not really won much before yeah. he arrived. Oh, but sure. I've, I found it a little bit distasteful, to be honest. I mean, there's like a yeah. minute's applause for the victims no. in Ukraine and the Chelsea fans were chanting Roman Abramovich's name, which I thought was the clearest indication of the effectiveness of sports washing and yeah. uh, I guess the um, the use and abuse of, of fandom in, in order to uh, basically paint these these oligarchs and and these pretty shady individuals as, as heroes is is pretty gross to me. So. Leaves a pretty yeah. sour taste at the mm. mouth. Hundred percent, bang on. Well, Absolutely. look, we'll move on quickly to 
perhaps some things that occurred on the pitch in the most recent week, seeing as we've managed to avoid talking about that up to this point <laughs> for, for unknown reasons. I mean, you'd say the biggest game of the weekend was, of course, the Manchester derby. A I've been trying to avoid talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine you have a comprehensive Manchester City victory despite a lovely Jaden Sancho goal. Uh, things still... I mean, there, it, it, to be honest, it kind of felt like the same old story for Manchester United in the sense of there were periods where there was good signs, nice things to, to see. You went, oh, that's a team that looks like it has some structure or some plan, you know, particularly at the start of the game, I thought that. But as it wore on, it kind of... There were significant phases of pedestrian play where City were just so far and away the better team they've got such such better players Um, I liked the creativity of you know we saw two teams without a well United adopting the Manchester City approach of not having a recognized nine Mm. is up front with you know Pogba and Fernandez kind of doing that which was interesting Um, I was wondering whether that was modeled off what we saw Spurs do with Harry Kane in the sense of having a player who you can play it to who can Mm. possess the ball kind of handle Rodri's physicality and then distribute to pacey players running past kind of thing. I don't know. Um, but And it maybe looked like it could have worked, but ultimately, you know, it's Manchester City are a really good team and they, they proved it yet again. I think uh, Ronaldo being dropped for this game mm. was very interesting and it stirs up the whole debate as to, uh, despite the goals that he scored this season, is he actually a net positive for the team? I'm not sure if Ralph Raniuk thinks so, not in these games. Mm. Uh, and the the theory of playing two essentially midfielders up front because they're more, more, more mobile and compress is sound, but the fact that one of them is Paul Pogba, mm. who is not a guy with great <laughs> defensive work rate, uh, I think is where, where it lets him down. So I'm just not sure that United have the midfield stocks to really compete with City regardless of coaching. I think that's right. I think the midfield was a really crucial phase as well in the sense that we saw how often, you know, McTominay and Fred couldn't quite handle what someone like Bernardo Silva or Kevin De Bruyne, the movement that they were doing. We saw City target the left-hand side in particular or United's right-hand side with Juan Bissaka. Um, You know, we saw Bernardo Silva and Phil Foden combine a lot and they were really effective. They created space for Kevin De Bruyne, who, of course, scored a couple of goals. And, you know, it's it, it, there, there, there's, there's a ceiling to this United team, in particular the midfield, and that's really kind of exposed when they play a team like City who are just have just this whole new level to them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think we're, we're seeing more and more often in these Manchester derbies, um, Kevin De Bruyne in particular, just totally bossing those games from, from midfield. The The previous Manchester derby, I think off the top of my head, was it, was it only 2-0 at Old Trafford? But it was still, it was one of those games where Again, you know, City just had all the ball and it's yeah, goes back to our, our conversation uh, a while back about um, how, you know, the, the lack of entertainment value that comes with Manchester City just um, dominating teams and, and being so relentless. But, I mean, loads of talk about Manchester United after the game, particularly from Roy Keane and Gary Neville um, about, you know, giving up and, was posed to Ralph Ranick and he was very staunch in his defense of his players and saying that nobody gave up and um, you know they, they they wouldn't have stopped trying and, and would keep fighting for the shirt and all those um, all those wonderful football cliches that we um, that we like but yeah I mean the 
the Liverpool fan in me went to bed uh, on on the Sunday night thinking, oh, Manchester derby, you know, maybe United will do us a favour. And the Liverpool fan in me woke up, uh, watched through the mini-match and thought, why on earth did I bother getting my hopes up? (laughs) Uh, Hope is the thing with feathers. Nick, but uh, it often lets you down. Um, look, I don't. Yeah, you shouldn't have expected anything different from this from this Manchester United side. I did find it interesting that Scott McTominay alluded to not paying attention to the drama behind the scenes, which of course portrays the fact that there is drama behind the scenes. It's not all going swimmingly. I wonder mm-hmm. how many of those Manchester United players are going to be there next season. Will Ronaldo even stick around because he's only got you know a couple of years left? Uh, in his playing days, and he probably wants to win something in that time. So I think it might be best for for both United and and for Ronaldo if he if he moved on, maybe went back to to Sporting. Yeah, that, that, I, I mean, I, I, we said it a couple of weeks ago because um, naturally we do end up talking a, a fair bit about Manchester United, but I I really just am so so interested to see how the the coming off season pans out for them uh and i think even this morning added an extra the the champions league action this morning added a little bit of an extra layer to that um psg absolutely dropping the ball again in the uh, in the champions league immediate links going to Mauricio pochettino has failed to do something in europe with psg again we know we've even failed to win the league last year with psg manchester united have been linked with Mauricio Pochettino for as long as I can remember. They're going to obviously need a new coach because Ranić is um, stepping away and, and moving into his uh, advisor role at the end of the season. So if Poch comes in, that's a, a, another layer to to think about. And I mean, in in a similar way to what I was saying about Bielsa, I mean, Pochettino is is sort of revered as this you know world class coach. But I think from a literal standpoint, like if you look on a piece of paper at his achievements, I mean, has he I, He obviously didn't win a trophy at Tottenham. Obviously can't be expected to win a trophy at Southampton. And he did well in, uh, in, in Spain before he came to England. He was fantastic at Southampton. Did some good work at Tottenham. But, you know, he's gone to PSG where you're expected to, to do things. He's got all this firepower. Again, it's probably not his fault that he has Mbappe, Neymar, and Messi shoehorned into a front three that um, you know has its own complexities uh, within. But yeah, if the this offseason new coach, you're exactly right, Josh. The squad is going to have a big, big overhaul. Uh, you would think, and we'll need a lot of, of strengthening. If then if they don't make Europe, that's, that's another question of who they're going to be able to sign. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'm just, like I said, I'm just really, really super interested to see how it works out. I mean, on the one hand, I don't judge PSG managers too harshly because, you know, the sporting direction at, the, at that club, they're not really given yes. much say. Uh, and you look at what Tuchel did after he left and came to Chelsea, won the Champions League in six months, you know, He's clearly a good manager, and it didn't go well for him mm-hmm. in PSG. Then again, he did get them to a Champions League final. So uh, there's also occasional tactical decisions that I've seen from Poch in big games recently that I haven't liked, and especially this morning when he, he brought off Paredes and, and brought on Adrissa Gay at a crucial time in the match when they needed to stay alive, and they just lost the ability to keep hold of the ball. 
Yeah. So he has a certain preference for combative midfielders over, mm. I guess, playmakers in that area of the pitch. And that worries me slightly uh, when United have gone for that approach for several seasons now and yes. it hasn't paid off when you've got, you know, McFred still as the as the axis. So I, 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 I'm a little bit sceptical of his preferences for players in, in those positions, especially when you, you think about his time at Tottenham. He played Eric Dyer in, in that midfield for a long time. Yeah. And as soon as Moussa Dembele kind of started to decline and, and left, it, it started to maybe the tide started to turn against him at, at Spurs um, when he, mm. he lost that player who could hold onto the ball, you know, regardless of what happened, you could just give it to him. And well, if we were to move on just really quickly, guys, just before the second break that will go on to talk about just as, as we're mentioning managers who are making tactical decisions, of course, Thomas Tuchel continuing to find ways around a really congested fixture schedule, picking up another win at Chelsea. Liverpool, of course, got the win against West Ham. Somewhat fortunately, you could argue, as West Ham missed a couple of major opportunities. And Antonio Conte at Spurs continues to be less than, well, not not at all consistent, but on occasion finding some really impressive performances and, and looking like a really good team, but not all the time because they lost to Middlesbrough in the Cup as well. So I don't know. There's... They're outrageous, Tottenham, aren't they? They beat Man City. Four days later, they lose to Burnley, and it looks sounds like Conte is about to walk out and start bawling his eyes out. And then, again, the results after that, 4-0 win against Leeds, lose to Middlesbrough in the Cup, and then 5-0 win against Everton. I mean, in fairness to Leeds and Everton, maybe the 4-0 and 5-0 wins against those teams aren't actually that impressive. Uh, given the the situation that both those clubs find themselves in. But, yeah, God, Tottenham, they're just – they seem impossible to read at the moment. But I think one one thing that is very apparent is the return to form of Harry Kane. He looks to have ga- uh, regained all that sharpness um, that he seemed to be missing, certainly at the start of the season, uh, you know, whether or not the failed move to Manchester City was playing on his mind or he was, you know, carrying something physically, who knows. But another couple of goals against Everton, the second one in particular was very, very nice. It was a, a sort of typical Harry Kane goal where he peels mm. off that defender into that gap between um, centre-back and full-back, um, gets the ball over the top and and takes it first time with the the left-footed volley. Um, yeah, he's, he's back in big form, but... Again, my, my issue with Tottenham has always been, you know, aside from him and, and Son, when Son's chipping in, just w- what else is there? And I still don't have really any faith in this Tottenham team because, again, you know, for every 5-0 win against Everton, they're, they're going to lose to Burnley. And I don't really see that changing um, anytime soon, to be honest. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, Nick, in the sense that, you know, tearing apart Everton and Leeds aren't particularly impressive because they're two teams who are defensively shambolic at this point in time. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned Harry Kane's improvement. I think that's got a lot to do with, uh, like, uh, uh, what, what I think has been really noticeable is how they've got Kane, Son, and Kulosevsky combined, and Kulosevsky's really contributing, and you're seeing how what, well, yeah, yeah what, what what he's kind of adding to this team consistently. So I think that there are clear areas of improvement or things that Conte's changed. I mean, it's good to see someone like Ryan Sessegnon getting a run, I think, because I just about forgot about his existence for a while there <laughs> since since he's been brought back in. So I, I think, and Conte's saying as such, that there's lots of things to fix and it's kind of, it's a long-term thing and he's not, you know, there are many deeply embedded problems at Spurs. So I, I, 
I would imagine that if any manager is capable of getting something out of this Tottenham side, I would back Antonio Conte because mm. he is that kind of manager and back against the wall kind of revolutionising a club, even if it's just for a short period of time. We know he can do that. He's proven that before. And, you know, we're seeing things or signs that we, well, we certainly weren't seeing at the start of the season from this Tottenham team. Yeah, I, I still haven't been able to get a consistent read on, on just how good they are mm. because they're this up mm. and down. Um, Doherty played really well against Everton. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's not someone who's been especially popular with Tottenham fans, but I, that was the kind of performance I've expected to see from him ever since he signed. That's sort of stuff he was producing at Wolves. Uh, I guess it was in some ways the tale of two Irish right-backs because Seamus Coleman in that game, it was one of those matches that you sort of think about as the, the retirement game. Yeah. <laughs> like Seamus Coleman and just third this season, getting right? retired by Son Heung-min time and time again. Uh, you just think, oh, God, watching through your fingers. Um, and we got the first hint of Frank Lampard starting to blame the players for the results, which is the hallmark of Chelsea, you know. No, that's one for the players, you know. <laughs> that's, yes, that oh my the... God, I forgot about that. Yeah. And, and he, he said it in the post-match interview, you know. Yeah. Uh, the reporter was was tempting him, baiting mm. him into it. He said, those first two goals were, you know, very preventable, weren't they, Frank? And he said, well, you know, we, we practice these things, but you, you don't tell your centre-back to, to step up like that. <laughs> 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 just, uh, I think he was referring to Mason Holgate there, but uh, yeah. uh, the way he just left all mm. of that space. Uh, for Tottenham to attack. Uh, um, you know, maybe it's a fair point, but once the players start getting blamed for everything and, and Frank Lampard starts absolving himself of responsibility, that's where it looks starts to turn. And in some ways, he's, he's the anti-Marcelo Bielsa. Uh, mm. Yeah, like, for sure. Because you think about the rivalry that they, they had in the championship when Lampard was at Derby and Bielsa was at Leeds and they had the, that you know, ridiculous playoff uh, yeah. to like type was one of the great games in the spying thing, mm-hmm. but it was also, uh, I, I think interesting to, to see them contrasted because Bielsa is a guy who never blamed the referee or his own players. He always took responsibility on his own two shoulders. And that's why he, one of the reasons he was so beloved. Um, uh, there was a famous moment when he was Argentina coach where it sound, sounded as if he was about to tee off on the referee. So I don't usually speak about referees, uh, after he'd been sent off from the touchline, he said, but in this case, he was right. I was impolite. <laughs> whereas, whereas Lampard is is a guy who uh, seems to deflect at every available opportunity. And I don't think that, mm. I mean, if the players see that, I don't think it goes down well. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were clearly individual errors, particularly for those first couple of goals. I don't think anyone's denying that, but but equally, it's true that I don't think you can do it in the in public. I mean, no. yes, you can give them a dressing yeah, down but, behind but, the scenes, yeah, but I don't yeah. think players appreciate it when you go out and say, you and, know, it was not my fault, it's their fault. And Spurs looked like they were going to score every time they went forward. Like it wasn't this this wasn't mm. a, a game of instances. This was that 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 was the pattern of the game. That wasn't a, a, a lie of a scoreline kind of thing. So they're, 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 that these kind of results mm. aren't down to individual errors, even if even if that's what Frank wants to point to kind of thing. There's simply way more to it. And, you know, I, I'm, I'd hope that he recognises that behind the scenes, if nothing else, that, 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 that the problems at Everton aren't we have poor individual defenders. There's a whole disconnect between the entire team. But there's a story doing the rounds today. Uh, I think it's from the Daily Mail, so take it with a grain of salt, I suppose. But uh, Everton apparently risking a points deduction from the Premier League um, because of... 
uh, ownership stuff uh, with regards really? to how much money that they've they've lost. I think it's FFP breaches. Wow. So that's significant. And you know, if there are sanctions against their ownership because they do have Russian connections amongst the um, the ownership group, um, and Everton do suffer as a result of that. You know, that could be the deciding factor as to whether they go down or not, which would be, mm. I think, Everton alongside Arsenal is one of the sides that's had the longest run in the top division of English football. Like, they've never been relegated. Yes. Um, for, well, they've, they haven't been relegated in many, 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 many decades, and that would be an unwanted record for Frank Lampard to, to break. Yeah, and I dare say if slash possibly when they do go down, you you sort of you get the sense that they're going to be one of those teams of that... If slash when, all right, chill out. Yep, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if what that article is is saying is correct, yeah. and I mean, if if there is a points deduction, they're absolutely nailed on to go down. Even without a points deduction, it's looking um, touch and go. But if they do go down, you sort of get a sense that they're going to be one of those that maybe like a almost like a Sunderland that really struggle. Because of the money that they've spent in the last few years, they're going to have some players on some real hefty wages that are well, well outside a championship budget. They've put a heap of money aside to build this new stadium. I don't really think they had designs on cutting the red uh, or cutting the ribbon outside this stadium on the the docks of Liverpool while they're in the championship, or you know, God forbid, League One even. So I think. Well, certainly that's going to be one to keep an eye on if that story develops, Ari, uh, um, a points deduction. But just in general, if Everton do go down... They could go down hard. Yeah, real hard. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Yeah. Look, we'll have to go to a break in just a moment as I brief... as I hastily curtailed this conversation. Burnley and Watford (laughs) are playing better than Everton at the moment, to be clear. They're two Mm. teams that are below them and they're both playing better than Everton right now. So you know, uh, it's it's not at all unrealistic. We were having, I, I, but the, the counter to that, that is, we were having these conversations about West Ham three years ago, weren't we? Like that that was very similar yeah. in the terms of the new stadium and are they going to open this up in at, in the championship or something? So you know, 100%. things things can change quickly in football. Then again, West Ham didn't pay for this. Yeah, and mm. also you know, Sunderland are still in League One, so you know. The, oh, spoilers for the new season. The, there's, there's there is. <laughs> <laughs> there is yet much to be seen but we'll go to a, a, our final quick break and on the other side we'll have a bit of Arsenal talk to finish Welcome back to the EPL show one more time this evening but for this last little section, we are joined by a very esteemed guest. I'm, of course, referring to Pakua Frimpong. Pakua, how are you this evening? Esteemed is the correct word. I'm also quite heated. I've heard a lot <laughs> in the producer's room today from all three of you, and it's less so, Nick. It's, it's, it's disgusted me. It's um, upset me. But you know what? When you spoke about that record of longest you know, teams staying in the Premier League, I felt, I felt proud. You know what? Because we're a great club and a great team at the moment. Great club or team? Oh, yes, we were talking about this. It's quite funny. It's a good reference to before. Um, we are a great team and we're an okay club at the moment. Okay. 
An okay club. <laughs> okay that? club. See, that wow. was the, that was the opposite way around. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Oh, do you think I should have I mean, Arsenal's one? got this proud history. So, yeah, no, no, but the current this... ownership, you know, makes me... Okay. So that's, okay. that's why. But like, you right. know, the legacy of the club is fantastic as always. No, I'll pay that. I'll pay that. Yeah, you're invincible. Do you remember that, Josh? Remember the players that were in that team? Yeah. I do. I, I do remember that over romanticized team of the mid 2000s when Dennis the football Bergkamp, in the Premier League Patrick was Vieira. a much lower quality than it is today, technically your, do and tactically. Do you remember tactically. your Manchester United side in that, that league that season? I, I do remember that team. Oh, okay. um, oh, that's got world class talent. And, and United's tried to turn back the clock and, and put a Rude Van Nistelrooy style goal, goal poacher up front. And, Fortunately, like the march of history, <laughs> you can't avoid it. Tactics yeah. have evolved since then. So, Oscar, no, go, go ahead. This is your show. You and Nick's use. Go for it. That, that, that's all right. I feel like a child <laughs> between two fighting parents. It's very intense for me. Uh, well, look, Pakua, I'll ask you to just to just guide this Arsenal discussion because when I walked into the studio tonight, you you didn't need a second invitation to tell me about your frustration with the. I think the media's perception or treatment of Arsenal Absolutely. now that in the Premier League going on quite a good run it seems getting getting themselves in prime position to secure top four. Absolutely I, I heard this ridiculous discussion about if Arsenal have overachieved this season and I Nick Hughes alerted to it earlier in the show and I was a harsh cricket cri- <laughs> critic 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 cricket cricket what yeah. sport are we talking about again? <laughs> um, a harsh cricket cricket uh, critic of Mikel Arteta and the Arsenal squad because I was thinking about the season before and all I'd seen from them so I can only judge the future on what I'd seen in the past and. It wasn't looking too good, but you know what? I've turned the corner. I don't even remember what I said at the start of the season. I am all on this train. Martinelli, Saka, Odegaard, all these players playing tremendous. A lot of people didn't pick Arsenal to even make Europa League. So, Including you. Getting, no, exactly. So, Absolutely. So the fact that we are potentially going to make Champions League, and it is we are the front runners for it, how have we not overachieved? Because the step from Europa League to Champions League football it doesn't really matter about all the other teams in the Premier League. We have done incredibly well to win the games we need to win and be great in a lot of those games. And even in that Watford game, I know it was 3-2, but if anybody watched that game, we were dominant for a large portion of that game. So we've got the Fairweather fan over here and then the true believer wearing the <laughs> Arsenal jersey on Zoom. Nick Hughes, you never doubted Mikel, did you? Well, no, I, I didn't. I, I didn't quite think it was going to happen this quickly and I... I do think there's an extent of Arsenal probably taking advantage of Manchester United being quite poor across the season, Tottenham being quite poor across the season, West Ham sort of regressing to the mean, if you like, uh, and running into a... Regressing to the Moyes. Yes. (laughs) And um, running into a a poor patch of form. Leicester, who of course have been fighting in the top four, uh, have had an awful season and are sitting in 12th. So I do think that there is an element of, um, you know, maybe this this has been fast-tracked slightly uh, and, you know, the telling factor might be if they can um, continue next season and make the top four again next season, if, of course, um, they, they do hold on and make the top four this year. But, no, you're right, I've I've always thought that Arsenal should should give Mikel Arteta plenty of time. I've always had massive faith in the the young players uh, or the the main sort of trio um, that have come through in Especially Saka four Martinelli. Players, four players, don't Saka forget. Martinelli and Emil Smith Rowe. They've of course bought 
Martin Odegaard uh, and a few others. Um, interesting to see what they do up front in the uh, in the summer because Lacazette uh, certainly appearing like his contract won't be extended. Eddie Nketiah, the same deal. Uh, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, of course, uh, has already left. So they're going to need probably at least two centre-forward signings. Uh, we'll be interested to see who they might be. Of course, they were heavily linked with Dusan Vlavic, but he's gone to Juventus. Um, I think Alexander Isak uh, has been linked uh, from Sosizad, um, a, a pretty big talent, and another you know, potentially good uh, young star to, to come into that team. But no, across the board, I think Arsenal are, are very exciting. I think um, the Tommy Asu signing has been huge. Uh, Gabriel and Ben White. You know, ben White maybe hasn't um, necessarily taken to Arsenal like a duck in duck to water or whatever that thing is. Um, immediately, you know, 50 million pounds, of course, was a lot of money. Of course, there's a little bit of that young English player tax that, that probably bumps it up by 10 or 15 coming from Brighton, but still a huge fan of him. Aaron Ramsdale as well. I uh, I, I think if we're pointing out and uh, the success stories in their squad, I think you have to talk about Aaron Ramsdale because um, if you listen to uh, certain areas of Arsenal support, um, you know, he was the worst goalkeeper to ever put a pair of gloves on in the history of the game. And they couldn't believe that they were signing this guy. Uh, and he's just about probably been the best goalkeeper uh, uh, league-wide this oh, season. Oh, come on. He's, he's that... third in the clean sheet race. I said, ju- I said just about. I said oh, just only, about. Nick, there's only two goalkeepers who've got better records than him, and they play for Man City and Liverpool with su- substantially better defences. I, being... I, I don't think clean sheets is a good exactly. measure no, of no, what no, a, no, but a I, goalkeeper. But I think his distribution... I think Jose, his... Jose Saar, I think, has had a better season... I think Allison, uh, I think, has been very good. Edouard Mendy continues to be important for Chelsea. But Ramsdale has been fantastic, and especially considering the reaction uh, that was surrounding his signing. Um, I wasn't one of those people. I just want that to be known. The I'm other, very happy. The other Maybe name we I'd... should dredge up some of. No, of, no, no. I was footage. never a team team bird, Leonard. I was done with that man three years uh, ago. That's, that's true. You were very uh, done with him. Certainly team uh, team Emmy Martinez. Team Emmy, yeah. I, I mean, the name we've omitted from our goalkeeper discussion is, of course, Scott Carson. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll allow that. So <laughs> yes, yeah. well done. You know what is a good well statistical played. measure of a goalkeeper? What is that? Is the... Uh, Goals conceded versus post-shot XG, which yep. is... You love an XG stat, well, don't you, Josh? Expected goals, but post-shot XG actually takes into account the area of the goal that the shot was placed into and the statistical yep. likelihood that it would go in. So it's not about the strikers finishing, being poor or otherwise. It's about... It actually narrows down the effect of the goalkeeper on, on saving those shots. And yes, he's not a modern keeper in the traditional sense of the word. And yes, he's not great with his distribution. But David De Gea is way ahead in that stat. He's had a he's turned back the clock. Yes, Manchester United are having a bad year, but they'd be a lot worse off if it wasn't for David De Gea. So I think in terms of the best mm. goalkeeper in the Premier League this year, I don't think there's really an argument. How old is Aaron Ramsey yeah, again? I'm- 23. Who, yeah. who cares about his age? We're talking about if he's been the best keeper in the league. No, 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 age has no, got no, absolutely no, no, nothing no, no, to do no. with it. Age, age has something to do with the experience of David De Gea and the skills that he has mm. learned over time. What, like Aaron Ramsdale, for his age, has done a, had a tremendous yeah. season and will get better and honestly could get to the level of David De Gea at his peak. So I think age has a factor to it with the skills that De Gea has and the artillery, you know, the weapons that he has to at his disposal. I, I do think that Arsenal fans overrate Ramsdale a little bit because of his uh, 
It's like the Ivan Kelliver effect of Melbourne Victory this season. Yeah. The, because the, don't, the vibes. Don't put them in the same sentence. The, no, no, no. Don't, don't, <laughs> let's just relax. in terms of the way they rev up the fans behind the goal. Like Ramsdale has a habit of doing this. And yes, I love the cult heroes and everything. And, and he's become a beloved figure at Arsenal because of that. And he's also a good goalkeeper. That's what he doesn't have in common with, with Ivan Kelliver. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there is a tendency of supporters to. to uh, take the emotional side of that uh, over what they're actually seeing on the pitch. So I, I, would, yeah. I would pump and the brakes a little bit. But I think he has yeah, saved Arsenal I, in a lot of games this season. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I do I do see Josh's point, and I think particularly that save from the James Madison free kick early on in the season, mm. I think no matter what he, he might have done in the next five weeks, I think people, everyone's, uh, everyone still would have thought that he was the best goalkeeper in the world just based on that one save. Um, because you know that was that, that was replayed all of, all over social media for for days and weeks on end. But as as you were talking talking, Josh, I was actually trying to pull those stats up. It's it's quite interesting reading. Um, so on FB Ref, um, the post shot XG differential. So yep. you're right. De Gea is De Gea is ahead with ten point seven, and Jose Sar ten point three. So essentially, they've each saved well, De Gea. Round up to eleven, Saab round down to ten. He saved eleven saved, goals that he shouldn't have based should on the have average. Conceded. Then, then based on the average Premier League keeper, which is crazy. It's a phenomenal yeah, stat. So that is that is massive. Um, then we got Allison and Debravka on three, a um, few others, and you have to go all the way down. Interestingly enough, mm-hmm. to twenty second in the league to find Aaron Ramsdale on a negative one. I didn't. I thought that eye test mattered in football. I thought eye test was a really great. I, yeah, I, but some, sometimes the eyes deceive you. Do they? Yeah, sometimes. Does the guy, your eyes tell I mean, you that Aaron Ramsdale's not a good. Is not one of the best Premier League. Eleven games? versus of actually conceding one more than you should have. In terms of actually stopping the ball, there's no there's no comparison. I mean, Ramsdale is a better keeper with his feet, though. I'll give him that. Hundred percent. Have you seen? Oh, sorry, go I think that the fact that Ramsdale has considered one more goal than he should have is further proof of, I think, what Arsenal have done well this season, if they've managed to achieve what Good they job, have. Good job, Oscar. No, you're, That's you're, you're it. Thank right, you. Thank you. I, I, These two are ganging up on me. I, Thank I, I'm, you. I'm here to help out. I, 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 I've really liked Arsenal this season in the sense of how young their squad is. I mean, we're talking about the youth of Aaron Ramsdale, but I think that across the squad, the capacity to perform as they have with players who are, you know, 23 and under, you know, just about across the pitch, whether you're talking about Kieran Tierney and Tomiyasu at Ramsdale, Bukayo Saka, Martinelli, Odegaard, all of the above, right? This is a super young team that with a, with a really young manager. And, you know, if that doesn't get you excited as an Arsenal fan or even as a football fan in general, just to see this group of unproven developing players kind of executing to the extent that they have. I mean, of course, when you do have such youth, the risk or the likelihood is always a level of inconsistency. So you'd expect to see mm. a dip in form from Arsenal at some point. But nonetheless, I think that we're that, that it's you know, it's really exciting to see. And the football that they're playing is just about mm. the most attractive in the league. I mean, the goals that they scored against Watford were just incredible. Um oh. it, it, even um, mind you, the Watford goal from Kucho Hernandez was it's probably the best also game. incredible. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there were lots can, of great Can someone goals. explain to me why Arsenal are suddenly fun to watch? Because some of Mikel Arteta's football, especially against the t- t- sides in the league that tried to defend against them, was insipid earlier in his tenure? I think that particularly with having Lacazette up front, it's really provided a sense of security. Like Lacazette might not score a lot of goals, but it's it's provided a level of 
connectivity between that mm. midfield that we didn't have before, playing a Bamiyang up front who couldn't hold the ball up to save his life. Now having Lacazette, it's not really about the goals. I think the whole team is more united of an actual mm. system that we that works for the players that we have. I think Thomas Bing is like also a big part of that. Sorry, you go, Nick. No, uh, all good. <laughs> I think Lacazette's roles, uh, role in some of those goals um, was was really telling, uh, particularly on what you're saying, Bakua. Um, especially the the Martinelli one, which was um, was from the throw in, and it was just all one touch, one touch, one touch, one touch, and you know Lacazette then holds it up and and lays it off for Martinelli. So, like I said, I, I think that's going to be a really interesting scenario for Arsenal going into next season with um, replacing Lacazette and and finding that striker to to lead them into the future. But um, no, again, and for the record, Pakua, you. Talking about people ganging up, I started the conversation by saying that Ramsdale has been fantastic. No, Nick, but the way you went, uh, it's just and, was just and I'll, I'll, I'll even I'll even the statistical analysis with um, saying that he has the third best save percentage in the league with seventy nine point five percent. Mendy is on eighty one, and Jose Sar again at the top on eighty three point eight. Yeah, I to me that's a kind of an empty stat because it yes. doesn't take into account the, <laughs> the shots. I mean, it's it's good to have a good save nah, percentage. This man obviously, is a hater, I'm telling you guys, but, he's, he's not a good but, look on. But Josh. if your if your defense is more solid in front of you, then the shots that you face aren't going to be as threatening. So you know yes. you can have face one shot and it's straight at you and you catch it, and then you've got a hundred percent save percentage for the game. So you know I think that's that's heavily impacted by outside factors, which is why I like the the post shot xg differential, which is yeah I know nerd alert. But uh, <laughs> before before we go, Pakur, mm-hmm. speaking of nerdy stats. Course, I called the uh, the Invincibles overrated before the break. Much to your much because to your anger. you know that's that's a ridiculous statement. You know it. You know it in your heart. You do. Well, you know, you look at the amount, not just the amount of points that teams have racked up since then. Mm. Let's take Manchester City twenty seventeen. Is that a good sign of a league though? Like the, like Ante Yukic had a um, really great tweet about how the Premier League the, the team's going to score like over a hundred points or so. I don't think that's a good sign of a league that teams at the top... I'm not saying it's healthy for the competition. I'm just saying that, unquestionably, the quality of that side is is higher than it has been for any other team because they've concentrated all of that talent. It's crazy. Like, you think, look at the goal-scoring stats. Arsenal in their invincible season scored 73 goals in, obviously, 38 games. Manchester City scored 106. Uh, You know, there's 10 points difference between the two sides. So, you know, I'm not sure that... Um, I mean, maybe it was a better league when Arsenal were in it, but that's because they didn't have, they weren't able to as- assemble the same quality that some of the dominant teams now yeah, have. Yeah, but, but Josh, you can't deny that the the talent of that Arsenal squad is impeccable. And it honestly, if you're making the best mm. 11 Premier League players of all time, there are plenty of those players from that Arsenal and squad that would make it in there. The best 11 from that team, absolute quality. But you put that side now in the Premier League today... And they would not. They, they wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. It's they not baseball. Win it. Like baseball, you can judge people. And on they didn't decade. have the same depth either. You know, they, the first eleven was on. It was amazing. But Arsenal. But is it not? Is it not more impressive the, the fact that you can get it out of a, a much more limited squad than you can you have now? The squads are undoubtedly bigger now than they were back then. Mm. So is it not more impressive the what they were able to produce on the field? Mm. Well, I, I just don't think the actual concept of going undefeated is necessarily the most impressive thing because if you're playing more conservatively and drawing heaps of games rather than going for the win and going for the three points 
I mean, you know, there's three points for a win and one for a draw. I just want everybody to be reminded that we did lose that invisible records because of a ridiculous uh, Man United player, and Josh is a Man United supporter. So that's where all this hate comes from. It's just just pent up from, you know, his entire life. Don't worry about it. Well, if you want to talk about, you know, the game changing or the league being more difficult and you talk about teams surpassing the points total, the points total was surpassed about three years after. It wasn't just Man City and Liverpool no, in the last five at, years that surpassed the points the total. Teams above now, I think I was looking for like there's like four of them are in the last like four seasons though. Like mm. so, so I I get what you're saying, Nick, but it's more prominent now than it was before, is it not? Yes, but also you look at the quality compared to the rest of Europe, and you know that Arsenal side never won the Champions League. Robbery. They came. They came close. They get. They did come close, but they never won. They never won the Champions League. Much like that, you know, Ghana losing in that World Cup quarterfinals and that Champions League. I don't particularly like to bring up those memories. They're dark times for me. They make. They upset me a lot. Whereas, whereas English sides now, the top English teams are the leading sides in the in the Champions League, increasingly so. I'm not a hater. I like Liverpool. I'm not a hater. I'm a hater of Man City, but I'm not a hater of Well, I, I mean, if you've listened to some of the things I've said about Man City and how boring they actually are for all their dominance earlier in this uh, in the season on this program, you'd, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a fan of Manchester City, but I think the quality is, is unquestionable. Anyway, we've gone way too long, so we should probably wrap it up, eh? We probably should. Yeah, no, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining us for this final section, Pakua, and bringing all of your enthusiasm that you do. Nick, thank you for joining us via Zoom. Uh, Josh, thank you for your wisdom and guidance as always. And Oscar, thank you for hosting it. Thanks, Fakua. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm here to provide balance to the universe. (laughs) And, you know, that was perhaps needed at some point tonight. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you again next week.